Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the third Aliyah of the Sidra of Genesis as part of the OU's Shnayimikra project. We continue the narrative of Adam naming all the animals which are brought before him uh, before he winds up partnering up with the female. The third Aliyah of Bereshit begins with verse 20, <clears throat> chapter 2, and continues through chapter 3, verse 21. As I mentioned in the previous lesson, the previous Aliyah, I think that the central theme is that in spite of, or perhaps because man dominates all the creatures of the earth, they cannot be a true partner to him. And the man gave names to all the domesticated animals or the domesticable animals and to the birds of the skies and to all the beasts of the fields. But Adam did not find a partner, literally a helper equal to and opposite him. As I mentioned in the previous Aliyah, this narrative, sometimes called Creation 2, is written for a completely different purpose than the creation which was described in Chapter 1. Man, here in Creation 2, needs to serve nature. That's the theme. Hence the emphasis on Chayata Sadeh, animals of arable lands, and Habahimah, domesticated animals, rather than in Chapter 1, where we saw the more generic and universal Chayata Aretz, animals that are on the land. Uh, any land. Here we're specifically talking about arable land, fields, uh, uh, places that man needs to work the land. At the same time, the man was responsible to obey God's commandments and restrictions in the course of guarding and working the land. None of these animals can help him for this religious purpose, for the purpose of obeying God. So, Vayapel Adonai Elohim Tardema Al Ha'adam Vayishan Vayikach Achat Mitzala God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he, God, took one of his, that is the man's ribs, and then closed up the flesh underneath it, that is, in the, from the place where he had opened up the flesh to take out the rib. Um, to paraphrase and modernize the famous commentator's Radax, that's Rabbi David Kimchi's comments, God gave uh, the man anesthesia and an operation. The Radak explains that the deep sleep was to prevent pain, like anesthetics, and he goes into a little bit of um, a philosophical jaunt about how essentially this shows that God works through the process of nature and he essentially, God essentially av- avoids performing miracles wherever they are unnecessary. And God constructed a woman out of the rib that he took from the man and he brought her to the man. There's clearly a lot going on here and if I was a scientist I might translate Translated in one way, and if I was a Kabbalist, I might discuss this whole creation of the woman from the rib of the man in a different way. But I think the plain sense is that the male and female are purposely of the same type, that God brought her to man making essentially the process of bringing to a naming identical to the previous parade of animals that has just concluded because man needs to come to the following conclusion on his own. By Yomar HaAdam, Zot HaPam Etzem Me'atzamayu Vasar Mibisari Lizot Ikarei Isha Kimeish Lukachazot And the man said, this time it is a bone from my bones or a limb from my limb and flesh from my flesh. This one will be called woman 
woman, Isha, notice the word Isha, because it was taken from man, which is Ish, Ish and Isha. Now the narrator, that is God, essentially the narrator is God through the prophetic words of Moshe, comments as follows. Alkain Yazov Ish et Aviv Veetimo Vdavak Bishto Vahyuli Basar Echad. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and attaches himself to his wife and they become one flesh. This is not so much a sexual reference. It's really a description of the process of procreation which leads to a children, to a single creature, which is a combination of both of their flesh. Um, of course, the question is, did man and the woman procreate in the Garden of Eden? There are those who believe that the tree of knowledge was, in fact, about sex. And those people would answer no. But Rashi takes a very strong effort to assert that Cain and Hevel, the first two children, were born before the exile from the Garden of Eden, pointing out um, that procreation, therefore, was no sin at all, and that the tree of knowledge did not really have to do with the issue of simply having sex and procreating. So, in this spirit, we would have to say that the next verse means uh, that uh, prior to this, they were comfortable with their sexuality, um, and the relationship that they uh, had with each other. And they were both naked, and man and his wife were not ashamed. Not necessarily because the tree of knowledge gave them some, uh, before they ate from it, they had no knowledge of what sex was, or what, or what being naked was, but they weren't aware of um, whatever it is, what, whatever aspect of knowledge would cause that nakedness to be a negative thing, rather than than a positive thing where they're comfortable with each other and they could procreate if they want to. Now, in chapter 3, since we've now started a new chapter, the plot thickens. And while we've gone to a new chapter, it's the same story. And if you look in the Torah itself, there's no break between the story. This is, without question, a continuation of the same story. And the fact that um, that a third chapter was created, that's really a mistake. It really shouldn't have, have uh, uh, been placed here. And the snake was shrewder than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Isn't it so that the Lord said not to eat from any tree of the garden? Now, there is a lot to comment on here. And again, I only have time to touch on some key points. So, first, I don't know who the snake is. Maybe he is a real Satan trying to trip up man, such as he tries to trip up Eo of Job in the beginning of that book, assuming that it's a real character or a real entity there. Uh, perhaps this is really an animal, a snake. And the snake was given man-like intelligence as part of this utopian experiment called, quote, let's make man immortal, place him in the Garden of Eden paradise, and see if he can manage to get one commandment straight or if he's going to mess that up. This experiment, of course, in order to see whether God to man would mess up his one commandment, would require some kind of temptation uh, some uh, some uh, creature that would uh, tempt man to create, to go against the single commandment. So perhaps God uh, put uh, the snake in that role and elevated his intelligence and his shrewdness in order to uh, to allow man to be tempted. Uh, perhaps the snake is a metaphoric personification of an internal human urge to reject authority. A Satan, sure, but not a real Satan, but an internal Satan. It's what we call a Yetzer Hara, an evil inclination.
Anyway, moving on to the next point. The word arum here, meaning shrewd uh, or wise, is clearly a pun on the word arumim, and they were naked. The word arum often, but not always, carries a negative connotation. Not just wisdom, but a shrewdness, uh, a wisdom used for nefarious purposes. Uh, the word shrewd, I think, in English probably carries that same kind of dark connotation. So the simple sense is that the snake is attempting entrapment. And no doubt in our modern society, the woman would have immediately sued the snake because of the entrapment, and the snake would have had to gone into the poorhouse, and the woman would have won her case. However, I don't really think that, I think there's a deeper sense than just a, a simple being entrapping another being. Uh, I think it's not just a question of the woman who is an easy prey for an entrapment. I think what God is trying to point out here is that mankind in general can be easily goaded into resenting God's authority. And in fact, any restrictions whatsoever, that man often sees what should be reasonable limitations and restrictions that are designed to keep society and man healthy. And I don't mean just man, I mean man and woman, mankind. But they instead look at those things, don't make a right on red, all, all, don't go through red lights, don't speed, all kinds of restrictions which are intended to be helpful and proper, but man sees them as overbearing, as an endless set of of pointless rules that some master puts upon themselves just to control them or to make them miserable. So if the Nachash, whoever he is, can stoke up these resentments, then human beings will surely sin. And the woman said to the snake, Oh, no, 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 no. We can eat from any of the fruit of any of the tree in the garden. It's just from the tree which is in the middle of the garden. It's interesting that she doesn't name which tree it is. And it's interesting that there are two trees in the garden. There's the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. But certainly she's thinking about the tree of uh, knowledge here. From the, It is only from the tree which is in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it lest you die. So Rashi comments famously here that the humans were never told not to touch the tree, only not to eat from the tree. And by extending God's law, the woman puts herself in harm's way. So as the Agadah, the legend goes, the snake pushes her into the tree and when she sees she didn't die, so the snake says to the woman, You will not surely die. Or as we read in the Agadah, you see, you didn't die touching it, so you won't die by eating from it. Of course, rabbinic law, if you think about it, it's kind of ironic since rabbinic law is all about extending the borders around prohibitions. It says in Pirkei Avot, uh, make a fence around the Torah in order to safeguard the actual transgression. However, the error here is in confusing safeguards with the prohibition itself. Had the woman said, listen, God told us not to eat from the tree on the penalty of death, and I personally wanted to add a restriction, a gzera, not to touch it, then that would have been fine. As long as you identify what we call a chumrah, a strictness, as a strictness, and not actually what God commanded you to do, so fine, so make as many restrictions as you want, as long as you don't say, God commanded me to do them. Another way to to, to um, look at her change. Another way to look at the why she's changing the restriction from not just not eating it to to uh, eating it and touching it without going into this agadic approach that she was pushed against the tree is that her adding on an, a stringency to the primary law 
is, as I said before, a sign of resentment of the restriction in particular, any restriction, of authority in general, since she credits God with more restrictions than God actually placed, as if God says, don't do one thing, and she's like, oh, he doesn't want me to do this and that and the other thing. This this resentment, as if God, you know, is just sort of throwing the book at her or adding stumbling blocks to her happiness, this resentment opens the door for the snake, again, whatever he was. So he plays on this resentment, asserting that the restrictions are not for the benefit of man, but for the benefit of God and for the purpose of keeping man in his place so he can't challenge God. So the snake continues, Ki Elohim ki Indeed, God knows. Note that the snake does not say, by the way, the Lord God. He just says Elohim. Obviously, the snake, the narrator calls it Hashem Elohim, but obviously the snake doesn't know Yud Ke Vav Ke, doesn't know the personal name of God. Anyway, returning to the verse, God knows that on the day that you both eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like Elohim, I'll translate that in a second, with knowledge of good and bad. Now, since people can't become like God, vitem ke Elohim, most commentators translate Elohim here as angels. Um, and once again, we return to the idea of what is this knowledge of good or bad that could actually make them be uh, like angels. Uh, but I would like to follow, offer another possibility based on Rashi, uh, so, um, who comments, Vitem Kelohim Yotzirei Olamot. That is, man can't become God, and he can't become an angel. But what he can become is some someone who creates worlds, who has the ability to create. Now, remember in chapter 1, this fits perfectly with the idea of Tov and Ra, a tree that gives the knowledge of Tov or Ra. If you remember from chapter 1, whenever God finished a process of creation, he said, and God said, it was good. He looked at it and he saw it, Ki Tov, that it was good. So if Tov means God is satisfied with an act of creation, then Ra, Tov and Ra may mean that the tree gave them the knowledge to create and destroy, both in the physical sense and in the sense of um, destroying and creating things with, uh, uh, with the psyche. That is that is, bringing things down psychologically, making people feel bad, adding bad will or goodwill to the world. Now, creation, of course, is not a bad thing. So if it was just an eight Hadat Tov, then maybe God would have said, eat to your heart's content. I don't think God cares that they're like God in the sense that they, uh, that they, uh, uh, that they're able to do Tov, but the problem is the knowledge to create is accompanied by the knowledge of destruction. They are two sides of the same coin. If you if you have the knowledge, will, and desire to to build things up, then you have an equal and opposite desire to tear things apart. I see Ra then the knowledge of Tovah Ra. The Ra side is being the knowledge of aggression, of destruction of both instruction in the physical sense as well as in the psychological, spiritual sense. And that then would then explain the shame and embarrassment that they felt of being naked in front of each other since it was now the idea of understanding the negative aspects and, and trying to bring people down and trying to destroy things. And that created what was a simplicity of being naked and, and simple procreation into something that was much more disastrous and negative.
Anyway, returning to the chapter. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, and it was desirable to the eye, and that the tree was pleasant to the senses, or perhaps maskil means it was good for increasing knowledge certain types of knowledge, and she took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate with her. Note, notice the quick succession of verbs, and she took, and she ate, and she gave, and he ate. It, one gets the sense that the actions are cascading, and the momentum is building as one thing quickly leads to another, until it all comes tumbling down. Rav Salavetrik, Rav Yosef Bear Salavetrik says something beautiful here. He says that the emphasis in this verse is on the desirability of the tree, and therefore it encapsulates one of two fundamental motivations for sin, says Rav Soloveitchik. One is hedonism, the desire for pleasure, and the other is hubris. So this verse is all about the hedonism. It's all about satisfying my pleasures. And in the previous verse where it said, you know, you'll wind up being like God, that was the hubris, the desire to have God-like qualities. And their eyes open, meaning whatever intellectual faculty the tree of knowledge of good and bad uh, targeted, they, 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 their eyes were open to that information and that knowledge, and they knew that they were naked, or as I said, they understood the implications of it, both positive and negative, and they sewed together fig leaves and made loincloths for themselves, some kind of belts. Now, in verse 8, we get to the consequences of the sin the punishment of the sin. And we read in verse 8, one of the most controversial verses in all of the Torah. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden to the wind of the day, and the man, along with his wife, hid from the Lord God in the midst of the trees of the garden. So, God comes in response to sin. But the question is, and the controversial question is, was God himself walking through the garden or was his voice moving through the garden? If it's the former, the question is, how can God have a physical manifestation that goes against our idea of a non-physical, non-corporal God? Uh, the Rajmam says, or seems to say, that his voice was more walking through the garden. However, if you look closely at the Rajbam, you'll notice that it's in parentheses, because it's reconstructed by the Rajbam expert of the time, a person by of Rosen. And unfortunately, um, this very, very good scholar reconstructed the Rajbam wrong, incorrectly. A correct reconstruction of the Rajbam has him not talking about what was moving through the garden at all, but he was referring to Leruach Hayom, the wind of the day. Now, most commentators say the wind of the day means the time of the day where it's windy or whether it's coolie or breeze, but what the Rajbam says is that the Ruach of the Hayom, the wind of the day, was the mechanism by which the sound of God's walking was brought to uh, the people. In fact, this guy Rosen writes a whole chapter in a book about how um, uh, Rajbam, by this reconstructed comment, is trying to point out that God has no corporeal sense of that at all and is trying to push that point, but uh, Rosen is simply wrong. Um, the Rashi, actually, so if we want to know whether God was walking through the garden or whether his sound or voice was walking through the garden, we would turn to Rashi. Unfortunately, the Rashi in almost every Bible commentary that you'll find has the words Shahaya. It was walking through the garden, which is incredibly frustrating. I mean, why would God comment on an ambiguous 
a phrase, ambiguous idea, if he's not, he's going to leave it ambiguous, if he's not going to clear things up. So the answer to that frustrating question is Rashi did clear things up, but unfortunately his comment which cleared things up was lost from almost all the printed versions of the Bible, essentially all of them until very, very recently. Fortunately, we have an old, old manuscript called Vienna 24. It's a 14th century manuscript, and Rashi says very clearly, God himself was walking around in the garden. So Rashi is very clear, and 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 everybody agrees with him. And most commentaries go this way. And, and the Ramban explains why I set up a straw man. It's not really a question because it's not about the corporality of God Himself. Essentially, the Ramban explains that the idea here is the idea of God Shechina, His. Uh, manifestation which can be found in the holy temple and the holy of holies and that manifestation whatever it is that could be on the move uh, there's agadic material talking about because of the sin the shechina of god the manifestation of god used to be high in the heavens and it was brought down low because of man's sin but either way what looked like a serious question about whether god walks through the garden is really not such a serious question at all um, I should note, by the way, the very oldest translation of the Torah, the Greek Septuagint, which was written in 250 BC, is absolutely clear. It is God moving around in the garden and not his voice. God is walking in the garden. And again, it's, it was just his shechina. And the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, obviously, God is not an idiot. He knows where he knows where man and woman are. This is clearly a setup question. God essentially is offering Adam a number of chances, we'll see, to admit his sin and repent. So God says, where are you? Hoping that Adam will give the correct answers, which would have been, I'm hiding because I did something wrong and I'm sorry, so please forgive me. Unfortunately, Adam does not come clean. Vayomer... And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid since I was naked, and I hid. Which is, of course, weird, because they'd already made made clothes, but man is just trying to come up for an excuse for his hiding, because he doesn't want to admit his sin. So God says, And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Meaning, who told you the significance or the negative aspects of that nakedness, I think. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God is not an idiot. God knows everything. What he's trying to do is get Adam to admit to his sin. He knows he ate from the tree. It's a rhetorical, it's not a rhetorical question. It's a setup question. Adam, come clean. But Adam now does worse than simply not accepting responsibility. He shifts it. Vayomer ha'adam ha'isha asher natata imadi hinatna limin ha'etva ochel. And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. How sadly human and how sadly passive aggressive. He manages not only to accuse his wife who gave him the fruit, but he accuses his wife who gave him the woman in the first place. God wants tshuva, God wants repentance, and man gives him a slap in his proverbial face for saying, oh, if you hadn't given me the woman in the first place, this never would have happened. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, 
Again, rejecting responsibility. The snake tricked me and I ate. Again, God is looking for repentance, for acceptance. Yeah, the snake sort of got her involved and helped her do, do something. But you gotta take personal responsibility. So he's looking for acceptance of personal responsibility. I did something wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And again, what God gets is human failure. So the Lord said to the snake, again, whoever or whatever he is, because you did this, you are cursed from among all the domesticated animals and all the beasts of the fields, and you will go around on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now be careful here. It's true that snakes have vestigial stubs where their legs were. So one might say that he can only be talking to a real snake, not a metaphorical uh, Satan or, or Satan himself. Um, not that we really believe Satan. So we really have to say he's talking about an, an, the evil inclination. Um, so, but don't be confused about the vestigial stubs on snakes and by the fact that he's talking about the animals slithering around the ground. It can still simply be a metaphoric representation. The snake can be stand for shrewdness of the evil inclination, a person's internal inclination, which which descends into a slithering state instead of acting, instead of a person's psyche and, 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 and personal responsibility acting in a human and grand and upstanding way, it acts in a, in a, a descending, uh, slithering way. Um, and, and how the evil inclination can sort of bring a person down so that all he sees is the dust-ridden perspective that one gets if one lays upon the earth. Or as I said, again, it could be a snake, and it could be that in this utopian experiment, the snake was elevated for a while, and now he is being returned to his his debased state. And I will place hatred between you and the woman and between your offsprings and her offsprings. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. And again, it's up to you whether you want to take this literally or as a metaphor for the relationship between uh, man and his own internal evil inclination. And now it's the woman's turn for punishment. El Aisha Amar Harba Arbe Itzivonech Veheronech to woman, he said, God said, I will increase, I will greatly increase the pangs of your pregnancy. You will give birth to sons with these pangs, like contractions, pain, and your desire will be for your husband, and as a result, he will rule over you. A few things of note here. The expression, itzivonech veheranech, uh, the pains and the conception or the childbirth is what's called a hendiadis, which means a two-word expression meaning a single complex idea, in this case the process of, the painful process of childbirth. Obviously you wouldn't want to separate those words. God does not increase the pain and the pregnancy. God doesn't have anything to do with increasing pregnancy. That's up to man. Uh, it's the pain of the process of pregnancy that God is increasing. One might wonder how the woman was meant to give birth uh, before this. Uh, b- that is how in the utopian experiment of Garden Eden uh, she was going to have a child. One could imagine all types of biological changes. Um, but I won't speculate. I'll leave that up to you and to those with more biological bents and scientific bents. Finally, while woman's dependence on man is clear 
really stated here as built into her very psychology and physiology of the post-downfall woman. In Shira Shirim, interestingly enough, or very beautifully, um, the Song of Song, the woman says to her beloved, Alai Tishukato, his desires on me, not my desires on him. So she's intentionally quoting uh, or Shlomo, who is speaking for the woman in the in the Song of Songs, is intentionally quoting our verse here, and uh, and reversing the verse. Uh, it is he who loves me, not me who lo- uh, not me who has uncontrollable desire for him. So apparently, maybe on a spiritual sense, what King Solomon was saying is that true love between whatever parties, man and woman, or between God and the Jewish people, can undo or reverse some of the punishments that were uh, f- befell us. Uh, because of this first sin of mankind. To man, he said, because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you, saying, don't eat from it, the land is cursed because of you, with pangs you will eat from it all of your life. So since the woman's primary responsibility was to, was to join a man in a single flesh and create procreation, then uh, God God uh, essentially turned that process into a labor. Uh, and man's primary responsibilities was to help the earth to produce sustenance, so now his that process would be laborious as well. And these are the toledot, which started this section. These are the evolutions, the transformations of the heavens and the earth, because which were altered from their original design by man's unrepented for transgressions. The coats and thorns and thistles will she, that is the earth, sprout for you, and you will eat the vegetation of the field. The last part is difficult since eating the vegetation of the land was what man was supposed to be doing all along. So Ibn Ezra, I think, correctly says that this means that man would have to make bread and process food in order to get sustenance rather than just living on raw fruits and vegetations. Or perhaps it means that in order to get the vegetations to eat, you'll have to do what I said in the first part of the Pasuk, which is to get rid of the thorns and the thistles. Ibn Ezra's explanation, however, fits perfectly with the next verse. B'zeat apecha tochal lechem ad shubcha el lukachta kiafarata through the sweat of the brow, you will eat bread. Lechem in, uh, in Hebrew is bread, although in Arabic it's meat, so we could translate the word lechem probably as sustenance, uh, until you return to that land, because that's where you were taken from, uh, and that it is to dust that you will return. A famous, uh, famous line about how you came from the dust and returned to the dust, which means ultimately the punishment is mortality. And as God said, if you eat from the tree, I'll kill you. And you're, you're dead. Motamut. And that doesn't mean I'll kill you right away, but what that means is I'm going to remove my experiment. I'm going to remove the mortality and you will ultimately return back to the earth from whence you came and you will become mortal. You will get the death penalty just not that it comes right away. Finally, the story comes to a conclusion by returning to the naming process. And that's how you know that the whole thing is one story. Uh, we began with the naming of the animals, and now we end with the naming of woman. Unfortunately, the true partner. Unfortunately, it turned out, the reason why we had all this material in the middle of what should have been, and God brought uh, the woman before man, and man gave her a name, as he's going to the next verse. Unfortunately, the benefit that man found in a true partner, in woman, and she is 
a true partner, also brought along challenges for the both of them because of this partnering. There is a potential in the partnering of man and woman for corruption and sin, for the foolishness of blaming one's spouse for one's own problem, and that caused all of these verses in the middle that had things worked out perfectly, they wouldn't have been there. So now we return to the beginning, to the naming. And man gave the name Chava, Chava to his wife, since she was the mother of all life. Chava with a Vav, but the Vav and the Yud are interchangeable in many cases. And the Lord God made for man and for his wife's skin cloaks. I'm going to avoid saying cloaks of skin or cloaks of leather for a reason. I'll explain in a second. And he dressed them. So even translating this verse is difficult. Uh, for instance, does it mean the, the cloaks were made out of skin, like leather? Does it mean they were cloaks for the skin? Uh, according to Chazal, there's this nice God about how they were covered in some other substance, or maybe they were just bones and muscles beforehand, and God gave them skin afterwards. The point, however, uh, is clear. Man was dressed because he had transformed himself into transformed himself by eating from the tree into a state where his psyche would not tolerate nakedness without a sense that something was raw, something was bad.